0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with social researcher and writer Rebecca Huntley. Rebecca joined me in the studio to talk about her new quarterly essay, Australia Fair, Listening to the Nation. Rebecca and I discussed the possibility of a revival of social democracy in Australia, among many other things. And I welcome Rebecca now. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in. Happy to come in. So I know that you're um, doing the rounds, you're travelling around Australia to (laughs) to talk about this essay. Yeah. And um, you also do the rounds and travel around Australia quite a lot, don't you? Yes. For your job.
1: Yeah. It's a bit of a, it's, yeah, it's one of the perks, I suppose, is the word to use of being a social researcher. So most of the time um, when you're a qualitative researcher, so you're conducting face-to-face interviews or doing focus groups you do them um obviously uh not over the internet you do them in in real life mm-hmm. so so i'm kind of traveling around and do a lot of work in regional australia and sometimes going to people's homes and clubs and and that's always fun community centers but also in you know focus group rooms and things
0: yes and in terms of those two very different types of research qualitative and quantitative yeah do you think that qualitative offers a particularly different or useful insight for a range of stakeholders because i know your research would be used by many different parts of yeah. the community including perhaps, yourself Perhaps
1: not enough perhaps not enough <laughs> <laughs> um look i always think that that Qualitative and quantitative research—the weaknesses and strengths—they complement each other. So, most of your listeners would be mainly familiar with things like polls, or you know, which is basically surveys. So, do you prefer the current prime minister or Bill Shorten, or you know, what's the gr- happening with the Greens vote, or how many people want Muslim immigration stopped, or you know, all those kinds of things, or how do people feel about negative gearing? So that tends to be quantitative and it tends to, um, you know, be reflected in numbers. Of course, it, it still raises lots of questions, you know, to what extent do you ask a question and do a big percentage not know how they feel or how strongly do they feel? Or more importantly, particularly on something like immigration... They might feel like, "Oh, we should stop Muslim immigration," but when you ask them how important is immigration to them, in terms of all the issues that matter to them, it might be very, very low mm. down the um, the the spectrum of things that they care about. So. Even though numbers seem to think that they give us some certainty, they often raise a lot of questions. And then that's where qualitative research can really come in to giving you a deeper understanding. It's not representative. Um, You have to do very, very big amounts of qualitative research over years, which I've done, to Mm -hmm. even get a sense of, of talking about how the majority or the minority feel. You really need that quantitative research there. But qualitative research often gives you a better understanding of why people think the way they do and the really complex and often inconsistencies in why they feel the way they do so you might meet somebody who is a first generation migrant that thinks that first generation <laughs> that migrants shouldn't come to australia yeah. what what is why? that about yeah. you know what is that about and so and and really understanding why somebody might feel that way where logic might say that they shouldn't. I've even met asylum seekers who don't want more asylum seekers to come to Australia <laughs> and, you know, refugees who want to stop the boat. So that's always a very kind of strange position to be in when you hear that. But, but quality research gives you, like I said, the quality and that kind of, the t- you know, the, the deep dive and the numbers give you really the overview. It's only really together over long periods of time drawing on very different kinds of research that you can even come close to what somebody might describe as the truth of how the Australian population feel about issues.
0: Well, let's um, get back to immigration very soon. I want to highlight and discuss the thread that is through this essay, which is your concept and discussion of social democracy, the Labor Party, the Australian Labor Party, still says in their um, their constitution, I double-checked...
1: Um, because <laughs> it is still in there? <laughs> it's yeah. still
0: there. I've, I actually hosted TalkBack two weeks ago and a caller was fairly
1: certain it had gone because... There have been times where people have wanted yeah, to um, remove it and... and um, i'll read it out
0: just so people can see what we're saying it's number four it's under objectives the first (laughs) objective the australian labor party is a democratic socialist party and has the objective of the democratic socialization of industry production distribution and exchange to the extent necessary to eliminate exploitation and other anti-social features in these fields
1: yes and there's been a lot of screaming, yelling and, and pen, you know, to paper about to the extent necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you could describe the Labor Party ever, even at its beginning, as a socialist party. In fact, I think Comrade Lennon yes. made many, many jokes about the Labor Party not even beginning, you know, it was a kind of bourgeois, you saw it as a very bourgeois party. But social democracy is different than democratic socialism and social democracy sits... Much more obviously in the centre of politics, you know, somewhere between what we would describe as socialism and and what people describe as kind of liberalism or free market capitalism or the kind of the the politics of conservative parties in many ways. So, yeah, it kind of sits there. And even though those words have sat there in the party platform for a long time, it's because most of the people in the party who believe that who would you know never ever want the party to be not only a socialist party but a social democratic party think it's not worth the effort of getting <laughs> <laughs> of getting it removed because when when labor parties are in government they they will pursue the policies that they want to pursue yeah. at the time. They're not constrained it's, by what's in the platform.
0: They're, no, they're not consulting it to say, <laughs> no, can no. we do that?
1: Mm, to the extent necessary. <laughs> but that being said, the fact that it's still there, and even though nobody wants to talk about it, it's still an opportunity, really, if people in the lab Party want to reflect on, well, why was that put wet there and what does it mean? And how do we update that? It's not These aren't just kind of meaningless, empty words we could ignore, but is that an opportunity for us to rethink in the light of massive changes in politics about what that could mean for the party?
0: Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about Tony Judd, who was a really fantastic historian. He's passed away. He has, very sadly. Yeah. And um, he was just so inspirational. He as you said in this quarterly essay, delivered a lecture called What is Living and What is Dead in Social Democracy? And then he wrote a book based on that lecture called Ill Fares the Land. And it's probably one of the most moving books I've ever read. I'm not sure why it moves me so much, but he seems to just capture the essence of what is at stake and the issues. And so I'll just read out the first paragraph because I think it's really what you're talking about, about society's values. So he says... Something is profoundly wrong with the way we live today. For 30 years, we have made a virtue out of the pursuit of material self-interest. Indeed, this very pursuit now constitutes whatever remains of our sense of collective purpose. We know what things cost, but have no idea what they are worth. We no longer ask of a judicial ruling or a legislative act. Is it good? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it right? Will it help bring about a better society or a better world? Those used to be the political questions, even if they invited no easy answers. We must learn once again to pose them.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Amazing, yeah. So he's asking, look, I was thinking about this before because a lot of the... The essay's only been out for about a week, but a lot of... some of Some of the friends that I have who are a bit more on the right spectrum say, you know, the kind of vision that you present about what the unsilent majority of Australians want... A kind of a, a really fair society and some of the kind of more for want of a better word progressive view of australia mm. they say well that's not possible or, you know corporate interests would go after it or people say they want that but they don't they don't actually want it when they're faced with the issue And one of the things I've been reflecting on is, um, you know, my brief time as a a researcher in a big corporate, we were given some training about how to do negotiation with clients. And one of the rules of negotiation is you don't ask for what you think you can get, you ask for what you want. Mm. And I don't understand why people on the left of centre, instead of thinking about what is possible, don't first ask what is right. Yes. What do we want? Now, of course, we always know that what we really want... probably not going to be in everything Mm. in relationships (laughs) is probably not going to be what we get but why don't you why don't you first ask that question right and so i i i I do not understand why people on the left stop asking that question and Mm. first of all think about what is possible under the constraints that we have at the moment it's not something that the extreme right do The extreme right say, we're going to build a wall, whether they think it's going to happen or not. (laughs) Exactly, yeah, that's so true. They think, we're going to stop all Muslim immigration or we're going to take you all back to this beautiful imaginary life Mm. in the 1950s where women were not angry and and men men had (laughs) full-time wonderful jobs and children galloped around the neighbourhood with dogs and bicycles you know I mean so one of the things that I find so amazing about Tony's work is that Mm. it takes us back to that fundamental question and you you can't care about politics unless you care about what is the right thing to do now what is possible is a separate question but we have to ask ourselves what is the right thing to do to start I think and and I, I worry that in the main party that is, that is the left to centre party in Australia remains the Labor Party that we're not always asking us that. What uh, always asking that question to start?
0: Yes, it's interesting because um, Tony Judd, when he was talking about the U.S. situation of like liberals, and so he's saying like there's progressive liberals who yeah. are Democrats perhaps yeah. who would believe in some amount of a role for the government but not a huge role but still something and also that taxation was like a necessary evil you needed to have in order to provide some services and you know in some cases it could be good whereas social democracy and the conception of European social democracy many of those countries that fully embraced it also fully embraced taxation and thought it was a great positive thing obviously to varying extents but it it was not necessarily seen as just something you have to do painfully to take people's income away from them to provide services. It was kind of framed in another yes, absolutely. light. Yeah. In terms of the Australian situation, do you think Australia, perhaps when social democracy was at its highest point or at least some form of it do you think that we had a different way of framing what government provides and what we're willing to give up
1: yeah i mean we are i think for a long time have been unfortunately situated halfway between the american and the the um, european models around taxation and this may be why it's been so hard to get through taxation reform at different times so what you've got, what the Australian Electoral Survey, which is very useful, it's not something I've been involved in, but comes out of the Australian National University, very useful longitudinal study about how people feel about a range of issues, has shown over time that since, like, the late 60s, there's been a slow but increasing desire for more investment in services and a kind of roughly parallel decline in desire for more tax cuts. So if, if p- faced with the option do you want a tax cut or more investment in services? Over time, slowly, it's headed more towards the investment in services. Now, that is a good thing, but let's look at the the detail of that is kind of tricky. There has been a decrease in funding in government over time, so you would hope that that would be what was pushing up the desire for increase in services. There's absolutely a resistance to the idea that what people would imagine are middle and lower income people, so and, and look, everybody puts a different number mm. on what that is, should be paying any more tax. They want them to have less tax. There are real issues around the fact, and I just saw some numbers released the other day, in the last two years there's been a 20% increase in the numbers of people having two jobs. So whether that's people doing, you know, working six or seven days a week, as you often when you meet an Uber or a taxi driver, that might be the case, or it's people only being able to find part time work. And so those people talk a lot about the tax taken out. And there's a lot of cynicism about whether corporate Australia is paying the right amount of tax. So the tax discussion is a very is a very complicated one that has been in Australia for a long time because there's always been the orthodoxy that You should never, ever argue for tax increases. You should always be saying we want automatically tax to be decreased. And politicians always say, oh, everybody says they want more investment in services. But if they think they have to pay more tax, that desire evaporates. I think the Australian population are a little bit more savvy than that. And we've seen it in their response, for example, to the very modest... Views about taxation changes in relation to negative gearing, superannuation, um, and superannuation. Yep. So, so you you've got a readiness to deal with some of the really obvious rorts that are that are well rorts. Well, well Massive things that are holes. really, really, <laughs> really benefiting yeah. people who are already doing well exactly. in the scheme of things. Whether we're prepared to take the next step to say, in order to be able to have world class MBN, world class care for older Australians the ndis truly rolled out to fulfill its promise great public education are people prepared to pay a lot more tax at a time in which housing is still pretty expensive across the nation even though there's been a you know a decrease in the in the bubble and a whole range of other costs are expensive and that's a that's a much harder job of political advocacy mm. to get people to trust to say we're going to take your money and you're going to see that reflected in all these services that you've perceived there to be a decline.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Is it perhaps that people don't necessarily trust politicians' ability to deliver fully on what they've promised? Perhaps government's currently not particularly well-equipped in some ways because they've been stripped of expertise? Yeah, the
1: the expertise in government... Stripping away of expertise in government's been a really interesting one. Look, I think... And and one of the the parts of the essay that is... Most important to me is the points that I make around renewing democracy and corporate donations mm. to politics. So the kind of idea that politicians are kind of, you know, well-dressed grifters or will say one thing in an election campaign and do another when they're in government, these are not new things. <laughs> so yeah. And anybody, as I say in the essay, anybody with even a passing Understanding of colonial history will know that our colonial politicians were not respected. So, this kind of idea that we trusted politicians and authority before and don't anymore is a highly simplistic the rum
0: rebellion is a good example
1: exactly so but i do think that that over time and particularly over the the period of the qualitative work that i did when i was the mind and murder report and the work that my predecessor Hugh McKay did there's certainly a growing recognition of how important corporate money is to politics so there used to be this idea that money didn't fuel politics in the same way that it did in in america Mm. But I think Australians are, over time, feeling not just that politicians and corporate leaders and some parts of the media are all mates that have barbecues together on the weekend. (laughs) It's more that they feel that there is absolutely money paid to the major parties by a whole lot of corporates for access and influence, not just necessarily straight-out bribes, although we don't know, because the reality is our federal legislation governing things like political donations is so uniquely bad that we can have literally millions and millions of dollars in one financial year circulating through that system and we don't know where it's from. We don't know how, we have absolutely no idea. So we can't measure the influence. So I think a big part of the cynicism about something like tax reform is that people think if we're going to have a truly equitable system where Qantas, Qantas, And the guy who runs Qantas and really, really wealthy guys and, and, you know, families with big family trusts pay the same amount of tax as I do, not the same amount, but the same quantum, Mm. is going to require reform that no political party wants to do because they're the very people that fund Fund elections. So whether or not that's true, whether there is substantially more corporate influence in Australian politics, I'm prepared to believe there isn't. But we won't know unless we reform the law because we can't see it. So much of it is opaque, some of it is dark. I'm not saying that there's ever going to be complete transparency but we've got a system that just is now something that voters point to to increase their cynicism about whether something like tax reform... Um, that benefits the vast majority of Australians is ever going to be something on the agenda of the major parties.
0: And there is this link, obviously, between political donations and political lobbying, but there's also a lot of other lobbying going on, not necessarily tied to donations, but part of other ways of networking. And uh, you highlighted the fact that Basically, such a huge proportion of politicians who exit politics end up in a major corporate lobby group or a corporate organisation of some kind. And it seems to be more and more disenchanting for those watching from the outside to see that the kind of barriers that maybe we thought existed don't actually exist as much.
1: Yeah, and that's a cultural change. I mean, I think that one of the things having. Known a lot of politicians in my life is that if if the standard trajectory that you see in politics now, which is that you go through you know the the youth arm of a political party, work for a politi- politician, go into politics and kind of hang on to grim life <laughs> <laughs> until it's all over. You know, if you might get a stint on Sky After Dark or whatever, but but you know yeah. you're. Y- y- often what's happened is your career has been politics. So Mm. suddenly kind of reinventing yourself at 40 or 45 or 50 into a new career is really difficult. So I think one thing we can do, and so of course you think, well, the perception that there are only a couple of avenues open to me as a lobbyist... Um, as on a, on a well-paid board because mm. mates of mine in the political party will, will get me on that board and those are my options or for staffers, it's, you know, to go into corporate affairs and, and, and so forth. I can understand they're, they're just scared about whether they're going to get a job after politics and I think that's something to be said. you I don't think you could make it mandatory but I, I think one of the really critical things in the culture of parties is, you know, is actually to say, look, this is not a lifelong career. You know, you mate, you, you go in, you, you you go all out for 10 or 15 years or whatever, and then you go on. We that, There's a really big need for renewal, huge need for renewal. And I think the other thing that's really critical is that we need to reimagine what it is to be involved in political life. At the moment, when you're in politics, there are very, very few avenues for going forward. So you're a staffer, you're a politician, you might be a union official or whatever, or you might run a think tank... I think the solution to the kinds of problems that we're talking about, cultural problems of of undue influence, um, whether through money or other means of politics, is just to get more people involved in politics and in political parties in different ways. And, And hopefully that will be one of the many things that we have to do to address some of the cultural and systemic problems that we see.
0: So let's talk a bit about these key issues that you identify as being a bit of a sticking point for social democracy and the progression of that, perhaps the revival. Yes, some Yeah, I do form. talk about
1: revival all the time, yes. uh, hopefully revival.
0: Well, as you said, you need to aim high and actually talk about what could be possible and yeah. we would want. Yeah. And certainly I feel like values-based consensus values of Australians doesn't necessarily get much of a run. You get these ideological values of small pockets, yeah. but you're not getting a, a majority, which you're saying, you know, Australians value fairness. Yeah. They value in some way or form equality so that people are
1: lifted up and brought along, not left behind. yeah and, and increasing and this is the, this is the key to reviving social democracy is that Australians have and continue to see the state a well-functioning state, As the best way to deliver that fairness Mm. and greater community cohesion, they do not think that the market, the unregulated, unfettered market, will suddenly produce that naturally. And they look at everything from the global financial crisis to the banking royal commission, and they say, even I mean, even regulated banks in Australia, Mm. even a system where government is playing a role, you have big corporations behaving in a certain way that in no way benefits the consumer. In fact, it's to the detriment of consumers. So what is key and what is a real point of optimism for me is that the revival of social democracy would not only be ideal, the conditions exist in the, in the broad attitude of Australians that that kind of equality that they value Will be delivered by a well functioning state.
0: Mm, Yes, and it's interesting because you see, or I've seen some pockets and political leanings who come from corporate life think well, everyone thinks the market can do it better and make it more efficiently, and we should always go to the market first to see what they can do before we think about government starting to intervene in things you really raised the point that for housing for example the market has spectacularly failed yeah. and in some ways government policy such as the hawk introduced negative gearing policy which was brought in for a very particular reason at yeah. the time has kind of been distorted into yeah. a whole other form now yeah. What are the types of things that people have said to you in focus groups around housing and and the failure and what government could even be doing? Are there any things relating to social democracy that anyone has said around state intervention or government involvement?
1: Well, I think there's kind of both, I suppose, a carrot and a stick approach to what the government might do in relation to housing. And so I suppose one of the things that people have seen is that, look, really big property developers are making a huge amount of money building. It doesn't have to be on greenfield sites government should be able to say a certain amount of that housing a percentage should be available for low-income families. We're not talking about public housing here, mm, we're talking about affordable, affordable housing. Affordable, yeah. Or a certain amount should be available, not necessarily to buy, but to rent. So it wasn't that kind of view in terms of, I suppose, a requirement. And then the other thing I think that... that um, that's clearly open is that the government itself, it's not just a question of building public housing, but itself in different kinds of ways, whether it be encouraging superannuation funds or, or to be able to invest in really, really good well-built affordable housing as well so the government can be an investor the government i suppose the other thing and you've seen happen a bit in victoria and also in wa invest in new kinds of models for social and affordable housing of course the other thing that government can do is recognize that for a lot of people owning your own home is never going to be possible and so how do we create renting a more secure and sustainable um, proposition in a way that doesn't materially make landlords completely impotent in terms of what they can do for people who are renting. So getting that balance right at the moment, very few people think that that balance is right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the survey shows that isn't. So there's been various moves in different states to do things like change the laws around things like no-fold evictions. So I think there's a lot that the government can do, both as, um, as an investor... But also uh, a lawmaker and so you see people realise that for a long time the argument that, that this will be fixed by younger people working harder yeah and lowering <laughs> their expectations um, there's a bit of that um, releasing more land yeah or giving one-off donations to people who enter to the market that that has not worked um, so I think what you get is a idea that there's going to be a whole range of solutions that may also need to reflect the local conditions. So yeah. what you do in Ballarat or Bendigo to encourage, you know, for in terms of affordable housing and all the rest of it is probably going to be quite different than what you do in the centre of Melbourne. So there are lots and lots of different solutions. People are looking for lots of different options, where the state may play a different kind of role in those options, Yeah. or maybe it's a. But all of it requires some kind of intervention in the market. Um, this idea that the market will sort it out and that, you know, and that hard workers will find a way to get into the market easily. It's not. Gelling with people anymore
0: Yes and it requires a bit of a bigger vision As to what Australians are like What their lifestyle is like And what they want because even in a coastal area, mm. I'm seeing more and more apartments being yeah. built yeah. with commercial stores underneath yes, and yeah. having these apartments on yeah. top. They do not fit the coast. They don't fit the town. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. so many ways that it just is not... You can't transplant the CBD of Melbourne into... No, that's not the, the solution, peninsula. Yeah. ...the peninsula. Yeah, yeah. And so everyone's just not sure who should be responsible. But certainly a lot of backlash was occurring... At the last Victorian state election around those issues from yeah. people in regional areas who don't want their town to be turned
1: into no. another big city. No, absolutely. And and the solution isn't... Yeah, the solution it isn't making a couple of regional areas like Little Melbourne's yeah. either. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously this requires a kind of... not only a whole of government but multidisciplinary approach. So you're talking not just about... Economists and, and public service servants, you're talking also about architects and town planners and, and sociologists and particularly local councils critical here and people working at community centres and so forth, uh, com- community activists um, on the ground who understand mm. what the best thing is going to be, particularly in things like in terms of how you deal with issues of both visible and hidden homelessness, which is... Um, I mean, one of the good things, I think, it's a slow but I think important shift is that while... People still think that visible homelessness is something that is caused by addiction or I think increasingly they call things like family violence. They are connecting it a bit more and realising that actually if you make housing incredibly difficult to access, Mm. there is going to be a kind of a, 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 you know, there's going to be a domino effect and so you are going to create a, a kind of what we call a hidden homelessness which is going to make it for people who may be living rough even harder for them to find new ways to get some secure housing. So I think, in fact, while the housing issue has been so really cute, there's been some really important shifts that have happened in public perception because it's gotten so bad.
0: Yes, and I was pretty interested in some of the discussions you had with those who do negatively gear yeah. their properties <laughs> I was really surprised that one um, I'm going to quote yeah. we could probably have just got a loan through a bank and bought the property outright and positively geared it if negative gearing wasn't available we probably still would have done it all I know is we get a free holiday from the taxes
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there were a lot of those people who negatively gear who said I'd be happy to give it up if it meant that others could afford house.
1: Yeah, look, it's really interesting talking to people who negative gear or who are in a position to do it. I mean, I'm not at all saying that all of them are yeah. for changes, but if you push them and say, look, was negative gearing the thing that made you invest? It really wasn't. Most of the time they're just worried about they've got the money and they're worried about superannuation. They're worried about their retirement and they don't think that super will give the same returns. Negative gearing makes it easier they get a better return. And, you know, if you are negative gearing, you're much more likely to say that you're worried about the effect on the market more broadly if you get rid of it. But no one was saying there was absolute, without negative gearing, there was no way I would take this path. So again, I think there is a kind of a more appetite in this area than people assume. For a long time, there was an assumption that if you did anything with negative gearing, you were... Attacking industry and initiative and and aspiration. And I think people have realised that the housing situation and the need mm. for there to be more revenue, to be able to invest in the things that really matter to people, and that is health and education, infrastructure um, and so forth, then some sacrifices have to be made and, and maybe negative gearing, franking credits are some of the ones that, that people are prepared to live with because there's no doubt that people... Australians feel that our social safety net, our environment and our lifestyle is going to be taxed more. I mean, not taxed in the literal way, but it's going to be put on more and more pressure pressure, in the future than it has been in the past.
0: It is it continues to rise. I yeah. certainly see it myself. And you sat down with um, a generation of three women from the one family yes. yeah. and the youngest who was a nurse works in emergency and um, she was saying, I really thought this resonated because I know a lot of my friends have said similar yeah. things in order to negatively gear or own a property yeah. one would have to be an investor and rent it out yeah. rather than live in it yeah. and so um she had said my friends with partners are so much better off perhaps I'd be better off having a boyfriend or a partner life is much tougher when you're single yeah yeah it's and really tough. That's kind of disturbing to think (laughs) that anyone, male or female, feels that much financial pressure that they must or should or would be better off and have some level of social pressure around picking a partner or settling down
1: beyond whether
0: they wanted to.
1: She absolutely thought that was the case. And I know I've met people who have even been in, in couples who've thought the best way forward is for us to buy a place Negative gear it and then move back with our parents, which requires a level <laughs> oh. of kind of, yeah. I suppose, affluence of the parents mm. and everything. I mean, these are and, and and so I suppose what's really what's really um, we're still talking about a reasonably well-positioned group, but that's what's so surprising to me that that the conservatives who would normally be very this would be their you know voters their bread and butter you know people yeah. who that they haven't picked up on this enough and realised that actually something kind of more dramatic needs to be done around housing other than kind of blind faith that the market will kind of sort it out.
0: Yeah so let's move into some of the other or two of the the other most important issues that you've identified because as you said at the beginning of the essay, housing just comes up so often and it has risen in the amount of discussions you've had but there are two other areas we've briefly referenced immigration and also the environment yep. and you said that historically those two areas haven't been a great strength of social democracy or have at least highlighted some tensions
1: yeah i mean look there's a very strong trope of racism through social democracy really since its inception in australia that's not to say that social democratic movements and parts of the Labour party haven't been concerned about race issues but it's always seemed like that that's been peripheral or optional, <laughs> I suppose is a really kind of and, and I think as well the environment as well. So um, that they're always kind of at the periphery, rather the center. I really struggle always to write about immigration and race issues, although I write about it all the time because in most cases the way that the majority of Australians feel on things roughly, Correlates with my own on a rate on immigration. It almost never does, (laughs) so it's hard to (laughs) right. And then often, and because it is, it it, because it's so strong, it's often very hard for me to suggest ways forward. And in the the essay, the main thing I said is that we just need our community is ethnically diverse, and our parliaments are not, on the whole. There's been some improvements in some sides more than others. And that just has to change. I don't think people with a lived experience of racism always make great policy in relation and progressive policy in relation to race, but mm. it's a start. So I think that's pretty critical. In terms of the environment, there's absolutely no way that a renewed social democracy can't include the environment at the centre because the environment is going to increasingly and is already impact on standards of living. Mm. If social democracy developed because um, movements wanted to guarantee certain standards of living in terms of wages, health, conditions and rights, then the environment will be the greatest influence in the future on all of those things, our ability to breathe, (laughs) our ability to eat, drink water, to be able to work, to be able to raise healthy children, to live in great environments, to move from one place to the other. So, um, and increasingly we've seen people recognise that animals and trees and fish and people are disconnected. We're slowly, slowly, slowly slowly, slowly. slowly understanding... (laughs) The connection between these things and every time we have an extreme weather event or an extreme you know terrible bushfire season or fish kills or animals falling from trees unfortunately those kinds of disasters are going to be the things that are necessary to get people to understand that these are all linked so Mm. so social democracy has to privilege environmental issues because it's about it's about fundamental human rights and standards of living it's about yeah you know, so that's that's why I, and I try and argue for that as well as I possibly can in the essay.
0: You do argue very well. <laughs> I think you also um raised the issue of collective security, yep. and I thought you know social democracy arose out of post-war Europe, and that also really did resonate is this idea that social democracy's foundations is about cohesion and inclusion yep. in in terms of that not leaving someone else behind having Absolutely. that connectedness of community.
1: And the other thing that we forget is social democracy was, was there to bol- bolster democracy as a solution to big problems. So both communism on the extreme left and fascism on the extreme right said we can solve these problems by getting rid of democracy. And there's lots of work about whether democracy is up to the task of dealing with the issue... Of climate. Now, I don't have a big answer yeah. to that, but I really want to push our ability for democracy to do it because I don't want to say we want a totalitarian leader of whatever ilk as a way to deal with the problems that we've... I want, to, I want to make sure that democracy is up to the task, is fighting fit to deal with the threat as big as climate change. And mm. that's why we have to make environmental issues at the centre of social democracy. It's about protecting the democracy and social democracy. Yes.
0: Well, protecting our entire planet that we live on, like that we're actually reliant upon not just for breathing but for materials. Yes, all of
1: those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, food. It is surprising that it's taken so long for people to realise how interconnected we are with the land that we live on. Obviously, it hasn't taken Indigenous Australians long because they... Originated with all of those issues yeah. as part of their culture. Well,
1: you know, one of our one of our great national problems is we failed to learn both Indigenous history and failed and to learn, learn from.
0: What they know. Yeah, exactly, and that should be a source of pride, but also a, a massive resource. Sure, we should be listening. Absolutely. Um, so, overall, in this essay, part of the contention is that there is this you're saying they're unsilent yes. in the sense that <laughs> they vote every three yeah, yeah, years in vote. a federal yeah, election. I can see
1: their sentiment expressed, you know, not always clearly, but yeah. I can see, you know, every election um, result makes sense and I can hear the voices of the people that I research expressed through the ballot box or it's often misinterpreted through the ballot box in various ways but yeah
0: very much so recently (laughs) in by-elections for example but we hear about this idea of progressive Australians or that there's a majority that would accept certain things we're not necessarily saying they're Labor voters or that they're left-wing but that they have a set of values that are quite common and shared And that perhaps enable things that are quite progressive, like lifting people up, like caring about the environment, making sure people can actually have access to housing and a job.
1: More investment in in aged care, the idea that we need to have an NDIS or even something. I mean, it's always fascinating to me, something which until recently in Victoria was something that just completely flummoxed the political system, which is euthanasia nobody wanted to deal with it no it was just all in the too hard basket but actually if you look in terms of attitudes to euthanasia across political allegiances at those cohorts there's a really strong majority across the board for euthanasia including in one nation voters (laughs) so i think because so much of our of the visible political contests and our media is about conflict, is about difference. And and in so many ways, so pig-headed. Let's get somebody who completely denies climate change is happening with somebody who's a climate change scientist and then they, you know, they try, you know, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Yes. <laughs> and so I think people mistake that for, for what's happening in the public. And yeah. so what I try and do in the essay is really say, well, what does the data, not just the data I've collected, but what does all the data say about what we agree on? And where is the foundation, right? And how do we build up from that? Now, obviously, where there's the really extreme conflicts are on things that are, in so many ways, hit at some really kind of dark and complex emotions in um, terrorism immigration, climate change, climate change is terrifying you know whether you believe in it or not you just you, you, every human impulse is to, to look away often on a lot of gender issues as well. So I understand why there's been so much focus and there and there often is some polarization but I suppose I want to start again and the way, in the same way as we have to start about what is a good society, what kind of society do we want to have not what do we think is politically achievable. I also think we need to start on where's the agreement? and and the research shows us this agreement on a whole lot of things in which there's been a lot of political let's say sometimes apathy sometimes inertia yes <laughs> so yeah. when people say politicians are poll driven i go yes but the wrong polls
0: yeah <laughs>
1: <The> <laughs> what wrong are polling. they looking at <laughs> there's all of this research that says what people want so now, yeah. now now sometimes maybe that acting on that research isn't going to win you the finely balanced marginal seat campaign. That's the problem. So much focus is on how do we win the seats we have to... What are the issues there? If it's a roundabout, we're all going to be talking about roundabouts. Roundabouts.
0: Um, yeah, or corangamide at swimming pools. Yeah, exactly. Which is and that's weird. not to say that
1: roundabouts and swimming pools, <laughs> they're very important. It's not saying they're not important. No, no. We sometimes lose a sense of the wood for the trees as we're trying to kind of, you know, as both sides are trying to chop down one tree. So, I mean, again, one of the things I wanted to write the essay about is that, you know, people like me, people around focus groups and political pollsters have had a pretty bad rap as if we're the reasons why yeah. there's poll-driven politics. And I'd say, well, researchers are just most of the time just trying to do their job do it pretty well we do all kinds of research how how politicians act on that is not necessarily up to us <laughs> and also i'm trying to say look the research is not showing kind of weird results. you will read most of the essay and most of it will connect with what yeah. you think not everything i no. would never say that but a lot of it would be like yeah i think that way or that the way that person said that i get that and that's my life. So I wanted to make that visible for an audience who perhaps doesn't consume that kind of research mm. regularly as part of their job.
0: Well, it's so useful. Rebecca, I want to just end on probably the most important note, which is should a federal Labor-shortened government yeah. get in, where is the Labor Party at in terms of capitalising on this quite broad foundations of agreement in certain areas because at the start of your essay you say that a role of a new federal Labor government would not be to change hearts and minds. All a Labor government would have to do if it were to fulfil its election commitments is update policy and law to reflect the views and desires of the democratic majority. So in a way you're kind of suggesting they are quite well placed politically to be able to take up some of these things that the populace has already been way ahead of Parties on, yeah. in terms of social democracy and and that idea, how close is Labor to picking up either on that vision and or just fulfilling its commitments that actually most or at least a majority might already have a consensus view on?
1: Yeah, look, it's difficult because in, in many ways they can make a whole range of commitments in relation to social housing which they have in relation to strengthening environmental laws which they have investing in renewable energies which they have making commitment for example in terms of doing something material on the all or statement to the heart so you can do all of that and there and the data shows there's a, a support for that the question is what are the priorities going to be to do all that in one term would be a bit overwhelming. Slightly mask. Where is the opposition? And by opposition I don't mean necessarily the political opposition, but where's the corporate opposition to that? Where are the vested interest opposition? What is the media gonna what are some parts of the media influential parts going to do? So it's easy to say they can do it. The harder thing is what will they choose to do and how and also to do it well and to explain it fully to the Australian people. I mean, again, and this is, I suppose, I'm, I'm betraying here my personal interest. I think that if they win well and they kind of they get a substantial majority, the first thing they need to do is really address this idea of trust, and a big thing would be around corporate donations, and that would potentially make people think, well, they're fair dinkum about making sure that the decisions they make are not because their mates in the fossil fuel industry or whatever or other industries are saying you've got to do this, that that there would hopefully be the beginning of building the idea that reform and policy was based on what was the right thing to do, not what, feathering everybody's nest. So even though it seems like a small thing, I think that's a very important first step then I think, you know, we are really talking in terms of bread and butter issues, that whole issue of the idea of downward pressure on wages and increasing um, costs in other areas, including things like private health care insurance. Um, so addressing that, I think, would be critical. And, of course, housing is a big part of that. And then, you know, I hope that there are, is going to be more and more fo- focus on the environment. But, again, I think it's something that they'll have to you know be careful about but there's a larger question not just in terms of environmental policy but in terms of the people who run the Labor Party and the members of the parties and the affiliated unions about really it's an emotional and psychological and philosophical frame which is this is not part of an electoral strategy or because we want to beat the Greens in the inner city this is central to what the Labor Party's vision of the world that the environment is central that is a shift i'm not entirely convinced the whole of the party has had there needs to be a great swerve towards that new philosophical position
0: i think it used to exist in some parts of like in different states for example the victorian government under brax and thwaites were a lot more progressive on the environment and national parks and you raise this whole issue of you know different parts of unions and working class yeah. groups yeah. have invested interests in the environment for yeah. example in native forest logging yeah. and that can be a real contentious area but A lot of people in the Labor movement and party have raised the Daniel Andrews government and that Victorian election win as being a signal that obviously not all of Australia is going to be like Victoria, but that this kind of vision and idea for a far more progressive version of Labor than currently federally exists could be palatable. Do you take any stock of that argument and whether that ever has come up for you?
1: Well, I suppose I go back to this idea about This idea that there's a progressive vision and an old, you know, a progressive vision that's about cultural and social values of the Labor Party and a kind of materialist jobs and wages vision of the Labor Party, which isn't environmental, just doesn't make any sense anymore. Mm. If you're a union representing men and women who cut down trees, you want them to have a job for the next hundred years. Therefore, your industry has to change dramatically. It's going to change anyway. Yeah. And if you're um, a union representing people that are in the mining industry, again, your industry is going to change whether you like it or not. So I suppose the thing is is I, I reject the idea that the environment isn't about jobs. I reject the idea that caring about the environment on one hand is different than caring about people's standard of living or their wages or their conditions or their health. It's, it is the same thing. The electorate are slowly getting to that point... And the union the Union and Labor Party have to get to it as well. These are materialist concerns, not cultural and social concerns. They've been previously positioned it that way. That it's inner city latte lefting people who've never put their foot on farming or mining or forestry land in their life that worry about these things are concerned about things like pretty trees. It's absolutely not that no. anymore. And there are still vestiges of that attitude and it needs to go. Because we all know that the people who are going to get it in the neck when the environment really goes down the tube are working class people.
0: Yes, farmers, whole range of people. And that's why we saw the shooters and fishers yeah. kind of tend to do better in some yeah, ways than the nationals. Absolutely. yep. Rebecca, it's been fantastic it's been speaking fantastic with
1: you. to talk to you, Amy.
0: I absolutely really enjoyed this quarterly essay, and thank it's you. so readable. And it does really put out a different direction that could definitely be taken based yeah. on actual yeah. evidence and Australians' views.
1: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. I hope everyone, if you are interested, can pick up a copy of the quarterly essay, issue seventy-three. It's called Australia Fair: Listening to the Nation, and it's written by social researcher and writer Rebecca Huntley. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.